So this being the first Sunday of kind of a brand new season for Trilogy, as we've been talking about, I think it's important that we as a church embrace a new focus as a church family. And I think sometimes we can get into, well, you know, we do church every week. Well, that's not a focus, really. That's just kind of a, a means. But what is our focus? What are we trying to accomplish? What do we want to do? And as I begin praying and thinking about this next chapter in our story uh, and what it should look like, one word kept coming back to my mind. Again and again and again, this word kept coming back. And for a week or so, I wrestled with a lot of ideas about what kind of emphasis, what kind of focus should I cast the vision for, but that word wouldn't leave me alone. And I believe that God wants Trilogy to learn really what this word means, to explore the depths of it, to discover its power, and to make it a reality in our daily lives. And the word itself is not new. This word has been around a long time. In fact, it's at least 2,000 years old. And the idea behind the word is much older than that. And it's the word that Jesus used more than any other to describe his followers. That word, the word that God has given us as a church for this new season, is the word disciple. Disciple. And it's a word that anyone with a basic understanding of the Bible is familiar with, uh, but I would argue that few really truly achieve. And it's more than just a follower. We think of disciple as just a follower of Jesus, but it's more than that. True disciples live in such a way that everyone knows they belong to Jesus. That's the nature of a disciple is everyone knows that we're his. Their lives are filled with the fruit that's produced as a result of their relationship with him. And I believe God is calling us to be an increasingly fruit-filled church in our lives, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our new building, that we would see fruit just multiplied out of our lives and out of trilogy. And God wants us as a church family to move beyond just having church services and other religious activities to discipleship, to becoming disciples. He wants us to produce fruit for him. He wants us to produce more disciples. And we're going to go into that more, obviously, as we unpack that in the coming months, what it means, what that word disciple really means for us. And it's going to kind of flow through all of our sermon series that we go into. But really, a disciple is one that everybody around knows that they belong to Jesus. And number two is making more disciples. That's, that's at its most fundamental level. That's who God is calling us to become. The word disciple really comes from the classroom. It, it literally means student or learner. And in Jesus' day, young people didn't go to college. You know, colleges didn't exist. If you wanted to be a shepherd, you signed on as an apprentice and learned from the head shepherd. You know, by learning from him, you eventually became a shepherd in your own right. If you wanted to become a lawyer, you studied under an experienced lawyer. You worked for him, with him, listened to every word they said. Uh, learn to argue by listening to him argue, learn to bargain by watching him bargain, and you became his disciple and you learned from him. It was a common practice in that day. We still see that in some trade professions. You know, we got a welder back there. I'm sure you'd learn from a welder before you. That's how we learn these trades. Um, so it isn't unusual that the men who followed Christ were called his disciples. The first disciples were students. And Jesus was their teacher. And for three and a half years, they followed him up and down the Galilee, watching, listening, observing, asking questions, uh, drinking in everything their master said and did. And Jesus basically had this three-step plan for training his disciples. And this is, this is pretty common, you know, now with regard to how we train. But first, you learn by watching. Second, you learn by doing. Third, you learn by teaching others. 
It's really a simple process. You watch, you do, you teach. And that's what it means to be a disciple, folks. You watch, you absorb, you learn, you gain knowledge, and then you teach and you disciple someone else. That's why the Great Commission says this in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. So that's the end game. That's the third step. They've watched. They've done as Jesus sent them out in pairs. And he says, hey, go and do this. Go into the villages and, and reach people. But now he's going away. And now he's saying, hey, you've got to do what I've done. You've got to become my replacement. You're training and teaching others. And so he phrased it exactly as a teacher would in the first century. I made you my disciples. I taught you everything you need to know. Now go and make other disciples and teach them everything I taught you. And really the entire history of the Christian church for 2,000 years has been nothing more than that. Going and making disciples and teaching them what Jesus has taught us. That is what the Christian life is at its most simple level. And yet we fail at that miserably so many times. This morning we're beginning a new sermon series focusing on the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew 5 through 7. And so the thoughts and the teachings from this incredible sermon from Jesus, they really offer the best definition of a disciple in the New Testament. If you want to know what a disciple should look like, read Matthew 5 through 7. Because this is the job description for a disciple of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount reads like a job description for a disciple of Jesus. It tells us how to act, how we should live, how we should treat other people, how we should pray. All of this is found within the Sermon on the Mount. And so let's dive into the Sermon on the Mount. To understand chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, which is where it begins, I think there's a little bit of backstory that might help us understand what's going on kind of behind the scenes. It's important to find out the why behind the what uh, as you read scripture. I think sometimes we just get satisfied with what, and when we understand the why behind it, the what becomes so much more impacting in our lives. You know, why did Jesus condemn a certain action so harshly? Why did that group of people despise that other group of people? Why did this person fear going to that certain place so much? Did you know that the Jews actually despised the Samaritans because they put ketchup on their hot dogs? True story. <laughs> Well, that would have been a valid reason if it were true. It's not, but that is certainly a, a good reason. But when we understand the why, it gives us a much deeper understanding of the stories, the teachings, the history of the Bible. So on to the why uh, behind the setting of the Sermon on the Mount. When you look at the land of the Bible, uh, we're talking about a land that is some of the most hotly contested property in the entire planet and always has been. And always will be, scripture uh, prophesies. And so the land of the Bible has been occupied by opposing forces for centuries. Uh, going all the way back to the Babylonian Empire. After the Babylonians came the Persians. After the Persians came the Greeks. When the Greeks conquered, it was a young leader by the name of Alexander the Great. Uh, who took over the entire known world at that time. And in doing so, he attacked Jerusalem and conquered. And the Greeks take over and they begin to rule this area. And Alexander, like most guys who have a lot of talent, the talent kind of went to his head. And so in 324 BC, he proclaimed himself to be God. The next year he died. And after he died, he had no heir. 
Uh, he left his kingdom to four different generals that were under his command. Two of them that are worth noting, and I think kind of give some uh, influence to our story here this week. One was a guy by the name of Ptolemy. He ruled in Egypt. And so the Greek forces in Egypt had control over the land of the Bible until about 198 BC. And then there was this massive internal battle amongst these Greek powers uh, that was fought. And, and long story short, the Greek forces that were in Syria, controlled by Seleucid, the general there, took over. And when they took over, they came in and they had this blanket policy of intolerance towards the Jews. The Jewish people were not tolerated by the Syrian uh, Greeks. And so they tried to Hellenize the land of the Bible. Now, Hellenize means to make it a Greek city, a Greek place where they spoke the Greek language, they worshiped the Greek gods, uh, true conversion of the land and its peoples, which of course to the Jewish people was a non-starter. You know, they can handle being in captivity, but they're not gonna worship the Greek gods. That was a no-go. Um, so what ended up happening is one of the generals gave one of their high priests, the Jewish high priest, gave him a command to offer a pig as a sacrifice on the Temple Mount, which would have made the temple itself unclean. And so the guy refused, and in fact, he killed the general. He grabbed his own sons, ran out to the wilderness, and he started a revolt against the Greek captors. It was led by the Maccabees and the Hasmonians, those two groups of people. And it was an incredible battle because the people of God at that time were highly outnumbered by the Greeks, but they ended up miraculously winning this battle. They cleansed the temple, they purified the place, and then lit candles in honor of it. And they celebrate that victory even to this day, and it's the festival of lights called Hanukkah. So they purged their temple from all Greek influence, and it was that victory that we think inspired this notion that the Messiah would be a political ruler. It was out of this that they kind of started to get this line of thought that, well, the, when the Messiah comes, he's going to free us politically and physically. And it was such an incredible time for the people of God. They knew the Bible says that we're going to have a Messiah, and they thought then that the Messiah must be like the Hasmonians. He must be like the Maccabees. He'll deliver us from oppression, which seemed great but it caused all kinds of discord amongst the people who had their own take on things. Different groups of Jews had their own perception of what this meant and how it would play out. So there are four religious groups in the background uh, that are now in this confusing time of freedom from Greece. You know, sometimes when people are ruled, it's, it's structured, right? And you take that rule away, even though it means they have freedom now, it's chaos. It's confusion because they're so used to living underneath this authority, even though they were oppressed and they didn't like it, now they don't know what to do with themselves. And that's kind of how the Jews found themselves here. They had these four different uh, sects, if you will, trying to figure out this pecking order. And uh, they're trying to figure out not only what to do in this confusing time of freedom, but who they were. And they're all trying to establish their own positions of authority. So there's four religious groups. One's called the Pharisees. Uh, they were old-school religious legalists, okay? They were the OG guard of the, uh, of the law. They were purists for the word. They enjoyed looking backwards. They were always like, this is what happened, remembering the good old days. Okay, those are the Pharisees. 
Then you have the Sadducees. They were a group more of like politically savvy religious elite. They were folks that were kind of the religious liberals of the day. They rejected most of the supernatural things in our Bible, including resurrection. The resurrection from the dead was not a thing for them. Uh, they wanted to focus on the future. How can we position ourselves to places of power in this new paradigm? Then you have the Essenes. So you have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, now the Essenes, who were also present there at this time, and they were basically religious hippies. Okay, that's the Essenes. Um, they removed themselves from culture, and they found themselves out in the desert, trying to hide, separating themselves physically from the world. They basically had their own compound out there. And they were people who focused on separation and an incredible respect for God's word. And then finally, you have the zealots. And they were the religious fanatics. They were maybe the closest thing you would find in the Bible to religious terrorists. Uh, because they were driven by their zeal for God. Tra they trained themselves as warriors. And they fought anyone who opposed their cause. Uh, so they were focused on opposition, the zealots were. Now, knowing all of that, that's all the background. I'm sorry for the, the history lesson this morning, but let's look now at Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, because that's the backdrop of now what's happening here on the Sermon of the Mount. So Matthew 4, 23, Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing or proclaiming the good news, the gospel about the kingdom. So that's what he's doing. Jesus is going throughout all the Galilee and he's teaching in their synagogues and he's proclaiming something very significant. The gospel, the good news of the kingdom. Now that doesn't seem all that significant to us, right? I mean, the kingdom, so what is the kingdom? Multiple times in Matthew's gospel, you will read, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You'll read that again and again and again. It's this recurring phrase that comes up. And this seemingly innocent statement is kind of, the first shot fired across the bow coming from Jesus. When he makes this statement, it is an immediate defense mode from these religious people. So what is the kingdom? And what does it mean for it to be at hand? The kingdom is about the rule and reign of God on this earth. Very common biblical concept. In fact, even in the Lord's Prayer, which we just wrapped up uh, talking about last week, when Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, he says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, your kingdom come, your will be done. So the kingdom of God was the establishment of the rule and the reign of God on this earth. And it threatened anyone who was concerned with their own power and authority. It stepped on the toes of anyone who was trying to establish themselves. And you could see why it might have disrupted some of these religious groups who were out for their own gain. The king will return one day and will establish his throne forever and ever. That day is coming, and I look forward to that day with everything I have. So as we look at Matthew chapter 5, we get now to the Sermon on the Mount. And people can read the sermon and think that it's a guide on how to live well, okay? They can read the Sermon on the Mount and say, wow, what great, there's people outside of Christianity who read the Sermon on the Mount and say, wow, what a great guide for how we should live our lives. Because it is. That is in there. But the Sermon on the Mount is significant in that it is not a self-help guide to a blessed life. 
That's not what the Sermon on the Mount is. Don't misread the Sermon on the Mount. It's not saying that if you do these things, then you'll be blessed. The Sermon on the Mount does not say if you do all these things, you will be blessed. That's not it. It's not a handbook on how we should live. It's convicting at its core. The Sermon on the Mount is designed to, it's, it's kind of penitential. It's designed to raise this level of penitence, of, of humbly having this contrition and, and deep conviction in our lives. Meaning that when you read it, you should have that sense of conviction and repentance. There's this sense as you read it of, man, who could possibly do this? Like that's way above my spiritual pay grade, right? I can't pull that off. I can't accomplish that. That seems like too much. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount and that's your feeling, I think you're getting it. Because the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is to expose something that's going on on the inside of us. It's designed to reveal what's inside. Now we need to determine the audience who's here. Who's listening to this? Who is Jesus actually speaking to? We get two, really three clues, two of which are in chapter 4. So if you'll notice in chapter 4, verse 24, right before the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 4, 24, news about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. So there's this wave of people coming from Syria with sick people, people who need Jesus to touch them. We, we've got Syria mentioned, and all who are sick are being brought in. We have no idea how many people heard the Sermon on the Mount. There's no reference to the number of people that Jesus talked to at the Sermon on the Mount. It could have been hundreds. It could have been thousands. It could have been tens of thousands. We honestly don't know. But in verse 25 in Matthew 4, it says large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, from all over Judea, and from east of the Jordan River. Now it does say that there are large crowds, okay? But look where the large crowds are coming from. From the Galilee, that's rural Jews. These are hick Jews, okay? Uh, th that's the Galilean Jews are the hick Jews. Uh, from the Decapolis, which were pagan Romans. These were Gentiles coming from the Decapolis. Uh, then you have from Jerusalem, which would have been urban Jews, the religious elite. And then from Judea, which was the surrounding area uh, from where they were. And then beyond the Jordan, which is kind of the other side of the tracks. They didn't like to talk about the people from beyond the Jordan. Okay? And the point is he has gone viral at this point. He's drawing crowds beyond what we can count. And so now let's look at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2. One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him. And he began to teach them. So Jesus now sees these crowds. Okay, So he's going to sit down and begin to teach. And the second clue of the audience that is present for us, after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So we know obviously his disciples, his followers, are there. So we know in chapter 4 there's crowds of who knows how many from all over the place. We know in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, the disciples are present and he's speaking to them. But let's jump just for a second to chapter 7, which is the end of the sermon. And we get our third audience clue in chapter 7 as he wraps up the message in verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching 
for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. And so we, now we see again this mention of crowds, which it would be a fair assumption to assume that there were Pharisees, Sadducees, and Zealots all present listening to him. The Essenes were hiding out in the wilderness doing their anti-establishment thing, uh, so they probably weren't there. Um, but this is the big context takeaway for when we read the Sermon on the Mount. Because what we learn from all this is that he's teaching specifically to his disciples, but the crowds can hear him. He's teaching specifically to his disciples, but the crowds are listening. And I think that's on purpose. As he's sharing with them, he knows the other ears that are listening. Many, I mean, most of you, you do this on a regular basis. I mean, think about when you and your spouse are sitting in the kitchen and you know your five-year-old has gotten out of bed and he's hiding outside of the door. And you say something to your spouse like, man, I love that our kids listen so well and they stay in bed when we tell them to. You're talking to your spouse, but you know there's other ears that are listening. Okay? That's very similar to what is happening here. Now, the message for these guys on the kingdom was tough. This was a big pill for them to swallow. These guys being the religious leaders, it was difficult for them to reconcile this kind of message um, that Jesus was bringing because remember that the religious elite wanted a political ruler. They wanted a leader. They wanted a military deliverer, a conqueror. Uh, and Jesus is going to talk about stuff like, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are those who are hungry, who are gentle, who are merciful. And they were just like, man, this is not what I'm signing up for. This isn't what it's supposed to be like. And so they struggled with this message of the kingdom. And later in Matthew, in chapter 15, Jesus goes after these religious leaders. And I think it sets up what we're talking about here to know how he's going to approach them later. So in Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9, this is how Jesus talks to the religious leaders. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. And so Jesus takes this prophecy that the Pharisees had probably used to try to manipulate other people. And Jesus is now telling them, when Isaiah prophesied about you, and he just pegs them and says, this is what it's about. Jesus is after something deeper than just a political leader. This isn't about the Messiah coming just to set them free from Roman oppression. Because we've traded now the Greeks, and then they had that brief freedom, and then the Romans came in and filled the vacuum. Um, he's after more than that. He's after the heart. And Jesus knows their hearts. So woven throughout the Sermon on the Mount is this relentless pursuit to expose the sin in their hearts. And here's the really important thing to remember, church. Jesus was talk talking directly to his disciples, right? But he knew the crowds, which included the religious leaders, were listening, right? And one more thing you have to keep in mind, he knew you would be reading this one day too. You are part of the audience that Jesus was talking to. Jesus knew 
that Matthew was going to record this. Jesus knew that this would be preserved throughout the millennia. Jesus knew that I would be standing here in July of 2021 and sharing a message about this exact topic. He knew when he taught this 2,000 years ago, and he intended it for you. You are part of the audience that Jesus was talking to. And just like the Pharisees, Jesus is relentlessly pursuing your heart to point out where you're lacking, to expose the areas where we aren't kingdom focused. This message is for you and this message is for me. And so in chapter five, beginning with verse three, we have the first of nine Beatitudes. A Beatitude is a blessed are statement. Blessed are so-and-so, blessed are so-and-so. That's found here in the Sermon on the Mount. And the word blessing or blessed is a very interesting word here. It's a special word that is not used very often in your Bible. This word that Jesus uses here is, is very seldomly used, but it's the idea of a, a joy that comes through participation in the divine kingdom. It's this transformative joy that takes over our lives as we participate in the divine kingdom. It's not simply blessed as in life is good, I'm blessed. It's blessed as in, I'm good with God. That's the blessing that Jesus is talking about. It has a spiritual connotation to it more than a physical or an emotional one. And here's the thing. When we use the word blessed today, more often than not, we're referring to emotional or physical, aren't we? How are you? Oh, I'm blessed. In other words, I feel good. Things are going well. But Jesus says, none of that matters because I'm after your heart. It doesn't communicate, though, the path to salvation, and I think that's important because it's easy to read the Beatitudes and think, well, if I would just do these things, then I would be right with God and I would be blessed. But that's not what it's saying. In fact, it's meant to expose our, ability, our inability to do exactly that. And what he's basically suggesting is that true blessing life is not found in this life, it's found in his kingdom. Every one of these Beatitudes are going to focus his listeners inside. They're going to have to look inward. And what's going on in the heart and their inability to live out what Jesus is suggesting that they need to live out. And they're going to feel more and more unworthy as they listen to Jesus. So let's start in verse 3. Matthew 5, 3. God blesses those who are poor in spirit and realize their need for him for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So the, the New Living just says God blesses those who are poor uh, and realize their need for him for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Other translations, blesses, God blesses those who are poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So the New Living just makes an attempt to explain what poor in spirit means. Uh, in some ways, it's kind of a really weird way to begin the Beatitudes. Uh, when you read blessed are the poor, you don't know exactly what Jesus means. Um, the words themselves are not difficult. We know what the word poor means. And we know what spirit means, but what does it mean to be poor in spirit? And maybe the best way to answer that question is to say what it doesn't mean. It's not a reference to actual poverty. Jesus didn't say blessed are the poor, but blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed uh, are the poor uh, who realize their need for him. Okay, so there's a spiritual sense to this. It's something else entirely. There are two primary Greek words for poor. Uh, one means you have just enough to get by, you know, I'm poor, you know, I can turn my pockets out and there's nothing there. Um, and the other means you have nothing at all. It's the difference between being down to your last dollar and being flat broke. 
As a verb, the verb here, the word means to crouch or to beg. It describes a person who is utterly helpless, completely dependent on others. They are destitute. And that's the word that's used here. So to be poor in spirit means to recognize your spiritual bankruptcy before God. That's what poor in spirit means. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy before God because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the exact opposite of being rich in pride. You can be poor in spirit. So the first thing Jesus shows us about the kingdom of God is that it's not marked by spiritual arrogance. There's not a sense of I have arrived or I have accomplished or look at my pedigree. The kingdom of God is marked by total spiritual need. And the religious leaders of the day would have felt that this was a, a shot across their bow. This was a warning. Buckle up, guys, because this is going to get rough. Here you go. Jesus knew exactly who was listening. And he took aim right away because the religious leaders were these people who walked around arrogantly in public, praying so that everyone would see them, so they would be aware. These religious leaders are those who would fast twice a week and make sure that everybody else knew that they were fasting. They would tithe from their herb garden. They wanted to make sure they had the most important seats in the synagogues, the best places at every meal. They wanted you to see that they were a spiritually big deal, at least on the outside. And with the first beatitude here, Jesus goes right for the heart and exposes them for their arrogance because this is the complete opposite of what God is looking for and the type of person whom God will bless. Isaiah 66, 2, I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts, who tremble at my word. And then Psalm 51, 7, 17, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Now you would think, right, these, these Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, these guys are experts in the word. You, they have every single letter of the word memorized, you would think they would know these verses and already be living it, right? But they're not. Here's the thing. The nature of proud people is that they never see their own pride. It's kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy. They will never understand this principle and will therefore never receive this promised blessing. But these two verses are what we should be known for as disciples and as a church. A broken spirit, a broken and repentant Heart. That is what God wants from us today. Luke 18 then offers this perfect illustration of what it means to be poor in spirit. Jesus said that one day these two guys came to the temple and they came to pray. And one man who was this self-righteous Pharisee, feeling pretty good about himself, prayed like this. Uh, Lord, I'm so glad I'm not like the other people who pray to you. Isn't that a great way to begin your prayer? Um, I don't commit adultery, I don't murder people, and I don't break the law. I fast twice a week, I give a tithe of all I have. Lord, you're really lucky to have me on your side. It's basically how he prayed. The other man felt so bad about himself that he wouldn't even come near, or he wouldn't even lift his head to look up to heaven. Feeling this heavy weight of his sin, he cried out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Two men in the temple, both prayed. Whose prayer did God hear? The religious Pharisee? Oh no, not even close. Because he wasn't praying, he was giving God his resume. Jesus said that God heard the other man's prayer because his words came 
from a broken heart. Then Jesus gave the moral of the story. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. One man was rich with pride. The other was poor in spirit. One man thought highly of himself. The other knew his shortcomings. One man was impressed with his own accomplishments. The other was depressed by his own sin. One man boasted. The other man begged. One man recommended himself to God. The other man pleaded with God for mercy. One was saved. The other was lost. But it wasn't the good man who was saved. He ended up lost. And the bad man ended up being saved. The simple truth explains the end of the first beatitude. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. To the spiritually bankrupt. Because they don't deserve it. God gives it to them as a gift. And so here's this kind of jarring, startling truth. God wants rejects for his family. That's whom God is after. He wants rejects who see their failure and run to him for help. Jesus opens the door of the kingdom to the spiritually bankrupt and says, come in, this place was made for you. And some of you have been feeling not good enough for a long, long time. Not good enough for the people in your life, most definitely not good enough for God. You feel like you have nothing to offer. You're not worthy of God's love or forgiveness. And that is exactly where God wants you. Because all of it is true. <laughs> but it's not just you. It's me. It's all of us. It's the disciples. It's every person who's ever been born. And only once we realize that we're not good enough, only when we realize that we have nothing to offer God, only when we realize that we don't deserve his love or forgiveness and that he offers it to us as a gift anyway, that's when we experience everything he has for us. So some of us need to get off of this performance treadmill of thinking we need to prove ourselves to God or make ourselves good enough or stop being this or try to become that and just say, God, I am spiritually bankrupt. I am destitute. I have nothing to bring. I have nothing to offer, but I lay myself at your feet and I give you what I am. That's when God will raise you up in honor. That explains why this is first on the list of Beatitudes. In giving this simple truth, Jesus has shown us the way to experience God's kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They will be saved. Cursed are the proud, and they will be condemned. The world says, blessed are the strong, they'll rule the earth. Blessed are the mighty, they'll rise to power. Blessed are the rich, they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are the influential, for they'll be favored. Blessed are the popular, for they'll be loved. Blessed are the gifted, they'll be followed. Blessed are the beautiful, they'll be admired. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. It's no accident that poor in spirit comes first. This is the first and most basic characteristic of the spiritual life. This is where discipleship begins. This is the key that unlocks the door of heaven. And if you want to be a disciple, if you want to get to the core of what it means to become a disciple of Jesus, as we follow Jesus as a church family, then live your life knowing what it means to be poor in spirit. 
My goal is not to pastor a well-known church. My goal is not to lead a talented church. More than anything else, I want to pastor a group of kingdom-focused disciples who are broken, poor in spirit, and are following in Jesus, the only person who can make us whole again. Let's follow him together. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we thank you that you are the only one who can restore our brokenness. We can't fix ourselves. Most of us are, are a mess. God, we're like Humpty Dumpty who fell off the wall and nobody can put us back together again. But Jesus, you can. You can restore us. And I pray that you would help us to come to you today poor in spirit acknowledging our spiritual bankruptcy and asking you to do what only you can do in our lives. And if you're here right now and, and you've been struggling with this and your sense of worth and well-being and who you are in God and feeling, feeling like you're not good enough and feeling like you have to prove yourself again and again and failing to do it because you can't anyway, but you're caught on this spiritual treadmill and it, it's just, it's never ending. God's been speaking to you today. God is challenging that thought. And God wants to deliver you from that. God wants to set you free from that. And so if you're here this morning and you would say, God, that's me, God. I want to stop that. I've got to get off of that. I've got to get that out of my head. And I want to just come to you as I am. Because I know, I know that you accept me the way I am. I just need to convince myself of that. If that's you, would you just lift your hand real quick? And I want to pray for you this morning and ask God to deliver you from that mindset. Thanks. Anybody else? God's speaking to you right now. Just acknowledge it and say, God, I just want to be who I am. And I want to come to you that way today. Anyone else? Yeah, thanks. Anybody else? God's working. Yeah. Hands all over the room. Praise you, Lord. God, I just lift up my friends today who we all get caught in this trap from time to time, God, of thinking we have to prove ourselves to you. And God, I pray that you would raise us as, as disciples who are poor in spirit. And God, let us come to you unassuming, broken, destitute. And God, allow you to create us into the people you want us to become. God, forgive us for a performance mindset. Forgive us, God, of really having spiritual pride, thinking that we can accomplish something that would impress you. And Lord, I pray that every one of us in this room would move forward from this day, God, poor in spirit. And let us, let us through that, God, let us draw others to ourselves because you will raise us up in honor. God, you will put us in this place where others will come to us. And Lord, increase our influence as we humble ourselves. Lord, I ask that you would help us as a church family uh, to continue to grow in this concept of what it means to be a disciple and in turn to disciple others. God, as we move forward, grow us. We thank you, Lord, 
God, we thank you for this time and for this, this incredible sermon that you've uh, preserved for thousands of years for us to dive into it for the next uh, few weeks. Lord, we just ask you would continue to grow us. In Jesus' name we pray and everybody said, Amen. 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 Amen.